think there are some mornings that are, I don't know what the right word is, but where you just want to keep worshiping. <laughs> I think that was this morning where I could be content to stand about another 45 minutes of that. Um, I think a couple of the songs we sang there towards the end spoke of heaven. I mean, come on, there will be a day when all will bow before him. There will be a day when death will be no more. Standing face to face with he who died and rose again, holy, holy is the Lord. Does that fire us up a little bit, right? Does that get us motivated to go out and to be the church to a world in need? If that doesn't, I don't know what will. But that's the reality of the one day that stands before us. Well, as we look at Hebrews here again this morning, I think the book of Hebrews in general, at least for me, gives us a sense of joy and thankfulness as we consider that our Savior Jesus is better or greater than anything or anyone in this world. And I think, much like the Psalms, it gives me a sense of what we just did up here, this awe and wonder at who Christ is and what He came to do for us. And then out of that, that can stir within us a desire to want to worship Him, to give Him our heart, and to put our full trust in Him. And so, hopefully... That's what you've gotten out of Hebrews so far. Uh, but last week's message and today's carries just a little bit different tone with it. Like I said at the, at the opening there, it's a, it's a weightier topic than what we've heard so far in this book. And it's a warning for us. Now, when we hear the word warning, I think there's, there's some walls that can instantly go up. Right? I don't like warnings. That's not what I came to hear this morning. Well... Let me shape this for you in a way that may sound better to you. Not sure all of us have ever gotten pulled over by a police officer, but I can assure you, being on both sides of this, that receiving a warning is better than receiving the penalty. Right? Receiving that ticket and that fine that comes with it. I would much rather take the warning and if you've ever been in that position, what's the feeling that you have as the officer walks back to his car? It's that feeling of relief. Why? Because of the mercy that was shown to you in the warning. You were doing something wrong. It was brought to your attention. You were given instructions on how to correct this behavior in the future and then given permission to continue on your journey without consequence. And so you being here today is a little bit of a checkpoint on the journey of your life. So let's receive here this warning for us today, knowing that this is part of the grace and the mercy of God that He is showing us in our life. So please turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit 
and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying again, once again, the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning, Lord. We come before you this morning with a a word that um, it can be weighty. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be with us here today. Father, grant me your words to speak. Help me to speak them with clarity. Father, give those who are here um, just the ears to listen and the hearts that are open to receive it, Lord. And, Lord, wherever this word may fall, what soil you have for us this morning, Father, continue to cultivate it and produce a fruit for your goodness. Lord, we thank you. We love you. pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at this passage, we are met at the start with the transition word, therefore. And as we know by now, that means that we need to look at the previous passage to understand what the writer is connecting this next thought to. And that takes us back to Kevin's text from last week. We heard it was a charge against spiritual infancy, that as believers we are called to grow and mature in our walk and relationship with Christ much like an infant grows into an adult. And with that, the foods that they, uh, that they consume, they're changed from liquids to solid food. We, too, are called to mature in the things that we consume. To leave behind the bottle of milk and to consume solid food, the meat of faith and God's word. Being especially, as Kevin mentioned, self-controlled and not consume the substance that the world provides. And it's this thought that the writer brings in now to chapter 6. He says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Well, elementary here means beginning, and maturity here means perfection or completeness. So the writer is saying, let's finish what we've started. Let's grow. Let's mature and not be content with where we're at. If we're using a running analogy here, we'd say you need to leave the starting line and move towards completing the race, but you haven't even left the gate yet. Using a school analogy, we'd say you need to leave the elementary learning of of numbers, letters, colors, and shapes and to move on to those harder subjects, that algebra, chemistry, psychology, and calculus. Uh, The Christian, absolutely has a responsibility to grow and mature. And again, I think Kevin said it last week, that if we're not moving forward in the Christian life, we are undoubtedly moving backwards. And that's a harsh reality, but it's the reason for the charge here that we see in Hebrews, right? We need to be moving forward. 
And then it goes on to lay out some of those basic principles, those elements that mark foundational truths regarding what it means. In fact, this was the first command given by Jesus as he began his earthly ministry. He says this in Mark 1.15, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So for the believer, repentance is not an option, but it is the foundation upon which our faith is built realizing that we have sinned against a holy and perfect God and that we cannot save ourselves. And so we confess our sins. But repentance is not just a confession of our sins, though that's part of it, but it's a conscious turning away from those sins. Specifically here for the audience of Hebrews, it was a calling of them to turn from their old mindset of trying to save themselves by their good works, by putting their hope in following the law. So too, like them, we are called to repentance. But that's just part of what Jesus is saying here in Mark 1. The second part is to believe in the gospel. And this matches the second foundational truth mentioned here in Hebrews 6. It says that we are to have faith toward God. Another word here for faith is belief or trust or confidence in God. So for the believer... We are called to repent, but also to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, to trust him and rely upon him in all things. This faith says that he is the Lord and master of our lives. So we repent and have faith, and then we build upon that by living in light of those truths. So what's next here? Well, it mentions washings. But what does that mean? Well, this could be interpreted as talking about baptism. So baptism is foundational to our lives as believers. Peter says this in Acts 2:38. Says, "Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins." And I want to pause there and just speak to this point a little bit. I, I don't know where you're at today, but I do know God's command here for the believer to be baptized is pretty hard to miss. It's commanded because this is that outward symbol of being marked for the Lord and incorporated now into the greater body of believers, right? We often say it's this outward symbol of the inward change. And I want to encourage you this morning both young and old, if you're professing Christ and you're walking with him, you need to be baptized. Outside of the thief on the cross, I don't believe the New Testament speaks about unbaptized believers. And quite honestly, the point that is being made here in Hebrews is that if you have not taken that step yet and you feel stuck in spiritual infancy, this may have something to do with it. It may be time to take that next step in your faith. So baptism is foundational for the believer. Then it talks about the laying on of hands. This would have been the symbol of the receiving of the Holy Spirit, which is also the second part of Peter's words here in Acts 2, where after he gives the command to be baptized, he says this, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's a promise for the believer. So the Holy Spirit's presence 
and power in our lives is foundational for the believer. Next, we read about the resurrection. The belief that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but that he did not stay dead. That he rose on the third day and is now alive. And because of that, we know that for us, death is not the end. And that's the final thing the writer mentions here, that of eternal judgment. That for those who are in Christ, we will not have to face God's wrath in final judgment away from him, but we will be welcomed into his presence in heaven for all of eternity. And so this whole thing here, in essence, is a picture of the gospel. And these are the foundational truths that the believer places their hope upon. And the writer says here now, don't just stay here. Don't just have the knowledge of this, but build upon these things. You have this now. Right? You possess Christ, but don't stay in this spot. Grow and mature in the Lord. Verse 3 then graciously reminds us that we are able to accomplish this only in the grace and the mercy of the Lord. In our own strength, we could never overcome our own pride, our own stubbornness, our selfishness, our rebellion, or, or unbelief. But it's only as the Lord removes those blinders of our hearts and draws us to himself that we're able to be saved and to move towards spiritual maturity. And so this is the charge that is given to us in the first three verses. Now, as we move on to the next section here, chapter, uh, obviously chapter 6, but verses 4 through 8, the writer shifts his thought to give a warning to the reader. And, and this warning is most certainly one of the hardest to hear in all the book of Hebrews. And it's a warning about rejecting God and not being able to be restored back to repentance. Now, this passage of Scripture has several different interpretations that have been debated, which all centers around two main questions. These questions are, what are the people, or who are the people being described here, and what is their spiritual condition? Right, who are the people described here, and what is their spiritual condition? Are they believers, or are they unbelievers? And there are three main views that I want to briefly cover here this morning. The first is the belief that this is speaking about those who are genuine Christians, who began as sincere followers of Christ, but who fell away and have now lost their salvation. Within this belief is the idea that someone who is genuinely converted can lose their salvation, but then they can regain it again and possibly lose it again and, and regain it again as kind of this spiritual ping pong going back and forth. This view would, however, have to reconcile the statement of it being impossible to restore them to repentance if indeed they did fall away. And as we address this view, it is helpful to note Jesus' words in John 10, 27 through 29, which says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of going back and forth in and out of salvation in this verse. In fact, it's quite the opposite. 
I think for those who are truly in Christ, it gives us that blessed assurance that God, by His grace, is holding us in His hands. And knowing that we are in the hands of the creator of the universe, the one with whom all things are held together, the one who has all authority and is truly in control, should give us a great sense of peace, knowing that we are his and he is ours. Amen? The second argument against this view comes from Matthew 24, 10 through 13. This says, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So, during the hardship of the coming end of the age, Jesus says here that many will be walking away from their professions of faith. But Jesus says, however, in the midst of the droves of people who are renouncing Christ, there will be those who will endure, those who persevere in the faith, who hold firmly to the end and will be saved. Friends, I I truly believe one of the marks of genuine faith in Christ is the persevering of that faith. That's what Jesus is saying here, and so we cannot make this Hebrew 6 passage say something that contradicts that. The second interpretation would be that these again are genuine Christians who are being given maybe just a hypothetical warning. And this interpretation comes out of the King James Bible as that translation begins, verse 6, with the word if. So it's basically saying if the genuine Christian were to ever do this, then it would be impossible for them to renew their salvation. Again, the arguments against this view would be similar to what we've already discussed. But I think it's also helpful to note that the original Greek text does not contain a word that is equivalent to the English word if. So this view is a very weak interpretation at best. The third interpretation, and the one to which I hold to, is that this passage is referring to those individuals who have been influenced by the gospel. They know some of the basic truths discussed in verses 1 through 3, but they have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Master of their life. They claim to be a believer, and they have maybe even shown outward signs of being a Christian, but they are in fact not a Christian. They are those who have knowledge, who may even have the Christian jargon down, who see the benefits of Christianity, but who remain spiritually uncommitted. And you may be saying, okay, but that doesn't make sense. How can these verses describe someone other than the true, genuine believer? Well, I I think there's many examples that we could point to, but I think one that we could easily identify is that of Judas Iscariot. I think he's the perfect example for those who profess faith in Christ that proximity to Christ does not equal salvation. Judas walked with Jesus for three years, heard all of the teaching, saw all of the miracles. I'm sure he would have what they would have considered prophesied and cast out demons in his name. But in the end, it was all for him. 
Jesus was not his ultimate prize. He fell prey to the lusts of his, his flesh. He fell into the trap that money and building his own wealth was the most important thing. So he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And after committing this act, Scripture says that he, he changed his mind. Right? He expressed remorse over what had happened to Jesus, but he did not seek forgiveness. And then Scripture says that he had the tragic end of going away and um, hanging himself. And so this is a, a chilling reminder for us that just because we come to church, a Bible study, a youth group, a worship night, doesn't mean that we're saved. No amount of good works could ever change that. It's only through our personal relationship with Jesus Christ and our faith and our trust in Him as Savior that will save us. Well, before we go any further, I want to address a topic that inevitably comes up when we discuss the doctrine of eternal security or the persevering of the saints. The question normally comes up that if, if God has you, then you can just go and, and do whatever you want, right? You're secure. You have this eternal insurance policy that allows you to live a life of moral carelessness. But I want to make it clear that nowhere in Scripture does it say that we can have the reality of being a Christian without the reality of a Christian walk. Let me say that again. We cannot have the reality of being a Christian without the reality of a Christian walk. In fact, the majority of the New Testament is pointing out the fact that when we are born again of the Spirit, we will turn from those lusts of the flesh and strive to live a holy life. Paul says this in, in Timothy, or to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 2.19. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So if you name the name of the Lord, the commission is clear. You are to depart from iniquity, which is sin, wickedness, unrighteous living. Now this is not me saying to you that you are saved by being perfect. Because if that were the case, none of us would be able to withstand the judgment that is to come. But this is to say that no saint knowingly and persistently acting like a sinner should take comfort from the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. God's keeping of us by his grace does not take place irrespective of the conduct of our lives. Alistair Begg says this on the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. He says, our persistence is concurrent with our faith. There is no persistence without faith, and where there is faith, then you will find persistence. It is not that we retain our salvation on the basis of our persistence, but it is that we give evidence of our salvation by our very continuance. In holding steady to the end, we show ourselves to be held. 
Why is this important to understand? Well, it's at the very core of the warning given here. These people being described convinced themselves that they were persevering. But as time went on, their profession had proved empty. They professed Christ, but they did not possess Christ. They knew of the saving power of Christ, but they did not fully embrace that truth. But what are the marks then of those who fall away where it is impossible for them to be restored to repentance? Well, the writer lists four characteristics. The first is that they have been enlightened. Verse 4 says, who have once been enlightened. And this means to be exposed to the light. No doubt this is related here to what the prophet Isaiah says in in his book in chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And so these people have heard about Christ. They've been enlightened in the truths and encountered the principles of Christianity. They may like what it's about, but don't really embrace the reality of the faith. This is no different than those who week after week sit and listen to preachers on Sunday mornings. They may agree with the teaching that is being given, who determine in their mind that what is said they will do, but who don't actually believe it, don't actually then go and apply it. They've been enlightened, but they don't fully embrace it. Secondly, it says that they have tasted the heavenly gift. This heavenly gift that is being referred to is the gospel. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And it's important to note the verbiage that is used here. This is not, again, a full embracing or trusting of the gospel, but this is just a taste. They have no interest in consuming the full thing. And I think we all understand the idea of what this is getting at. We've all had a taste of something. Maybe it's been a bite of the food off of your spouse's plate at a restaurant. Or maybe it's trying one of the new flavors of ice cream at Zach's. I enjoy that part of it. Um, But I think even when you're given that spoon and the size of the spoon that you're given to taste ice cream should draw up in your mind what the writer is getting at here. It's just a taste, just a small sampling of the real thing. So we see here that it is possible to have a taste of something without fully embracing it and benefiting from its personal experience. Thirdly, we see that they have shared in the Holy Spirit. This is where you may be saying, okay, how could they share in the Holy Spirit but not be a genuine believer? Well, let's make this personal. I think we've all had experiences in our lives where we felt the convicting of the Spirit, right? Bringing to mind maybe sins that need confessed, asking us to go and talk with that person or to to pray for them. Do we always listen to that? Sadly, I can say from personal experience, no, I don't always listen to the Spirit. And so knowing that, we can say that this is talking about a person who has known the influence of God's Spirit upon their lives. They've sat under teaching and been convicted of their sins, but sadly, they don't listen to the Spirit. 
They hold on to the depths of their heart like it's some sort of game of, of willpower, right? The service gets over and the thought is, oh good, I get to go on with my life now. But friends, here this morning, I just want to remind you, there is mercy in the Spirit's conviction. There is mercy in the warning. And there's mercy in the warning because there's not always going to be a warning. Another element of this is found in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, which says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and, and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare from the, to them, depart from me, or apologize, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is probably one of the most sobering passages in all of Scripture. But the gist of it is this. Jesus is saying, not all who come to me, knowing my name, knowing who I am, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Just because you know me doesn't mean I'm your father. Just because you have the lingo down doesn't mean you're going to heaven. So as you turn on the television, or maybe more appropriately, as you scroll through your social media, be aware that not everybody who shows up on your feed has something spiritual, or that, that is saying something spiritual, is coming to you to do the will of God. Be careful that you're not being led astray. But the interesting part here in this verse is the fact that these people are claiming that they've prophesied and that they've cast out demons. It sure sounds like somebody who believes that they've been sharing in the Holy Spirit and in some manifestation of these spiritual gifts. But in the end, God says here, depart from me. I never knew you. So the reality is that you can share in the influence of the Holy Spirit and still not be genuinely saved. Fourthly, they have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come. Again, we're met with the idea that they've only tasted the word of God. I have to think that this is describing the one in the parable of the sower whose seed fell among the rocks. They received God's word for a moment or two, but they ultimately perished because there was no root. Right? Luke 8.13 says this, And the ones on the rock are those who when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. And it's this act, then, of falling away that we see the writer saying that it is impossible for them to be restored to repentance. But why is that the case? Because this is a picture now of one who is willfully committed to rejecting Christ. They have openly departed or announced their departure from the Christian community and have brazenly turned their backs on the very truce that would bring them repentance. They've seen and heard and tasted all that God has to offer to bring us to him. They've professed a knowledge of him and were identified with Christ, but they've ultimately rejected it in the end. And therefore, as they remain in that state, there is no other gospel that can save them. 
It's impossible for them to be redeemed because they're denying the very thing where redemption is found. I do want to make a distinction, uh, and I hope it's been clear for us this morning, that this is not describing the occasional falling into sin that plagues the believer. Right? The one that may be prone to, to backsliding or drifting from time to time. This is not, as Paul wrote in Romans 7.19, the plight of many Christians who can echo these words, myself included, for, the good, or for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. In fact, verses 4 to 8 is not even describing the Hebrew audience here. If you look at verses 9 through 12, we see the opposite. Here the writer is expressing confidence that his audience are genuine believers, asking them not to lay aside the full assurance of their salvation and to endure with hope until the end. It says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. All right, and that's a wonderful reassurance for them and hopefully for us this morning. That like them, God will not overlook the work that you are doing for him and the love that you are showing in his name as you serve those around you. And in so doing, he ends this passage. He, said, he asks us to not be sluggish, but to continue to imitate him and those around us who are persevering with faith to the end. Well, I want to close this morning by drawing your attention to verses 7 and 8. And here we see the writer ends his warning with a farming illustration. It describes land that has a steady flow of rain. One piece of land produces a crop that is useful, while another only bears thorns and thistles. As we look at this illustration, we can conclude that we are the land. And the rain is God's word and his spirit that is moving in us. One person, it says, can receive it, believe it, embrace it, and be given the blessing of salvation and eternal life. And the other one can hear it, but reject it, never letting it affect them. It says for this person, its end is to be burned, which is a pointing towards the judgment that is to come. Well, the same can be said of us here this morning. And I want to leave you with a question. What's the state of your field? We're all present. We're all receiving and hearing the same word. But as we're shown here in Hebrews, the result may not be the same. One life may produce a genuine response to God's word, and the other will allow it to pass them by. And I encourage you this morning, don't be the one who lets it pass them by. And you may be saying this morning, well, I, I'm, I'm not letting it pass me by. I'm receiving it, but I'm also not as fruitful as I'd like to be. Well, I'd say for you, that is a great realization. And I'd also say to you, I'm in that same boat with you. All right? Your field may not be full this morning, but as you look at your life, are there some shoots? Is there evidence of growth there? I had to think about when you're trying to grow grass, 
Sometimes it feels like nothing is happening. Then one day you go out there and you see one or two specks of green popping up out of the soil. That's a pretty good feeling when you see, okay, my grass is growing. Um, I did that with our landscaping this year. I, I thought we had a couple plants that were dead. We left them there, and then a few days later, I finally saw a couple of buds growing in there, and I had to get pretty close, but I saw them there. And so I want to say, if that's you, bless you if that's where you're at today, because that's a start. And because the unbeliever isn't even looking for growth, right? They don't care. They've, they've bailed. But you're still here. I want to encourage you, but now go, right? Don't stay here. Grow and mature and complete the course that God has set before you. Let's pray. God, I thank you this morning, Lord, for your presence here. I thank you, Lord, for this passage of Scripture, Lord. It's a, it's a weighty one. It's a hard one to hear, but, Lord, it's one that is necessary, and it's in there for our good. Lord, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would be with us in whatever state that we are in. Father, if there is an unbeliever here this morning, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would be convicting them, showing them, Lord, that you are better than anything that this world has to offer. Lord, and that you want that personal relationship with them. And, Lord, I pray that they could seek someone out here this morning, Lord, and that we could help walk them through what it looks like to give your life to Christ. Father, I pray for the ones here this morning who are maybe in spiritual infancy or complacent or who have backslidden. Lord, I pray that, Lord, you would meet them today where they are at as well. Lord, to receive a warning to know, Lord, that you might not always be there to convict, to convict and to show them, Lord, where they need to turn back to you. And, Lord, I pray that they could um, Lord, just help them in their walk, Father God. Help them to lay aside those pleasures, those, those things of this world that can easily distract us. And, Lord, to, to place a renewed faith and a renewed sense of walking in the past and the steps, Lord, where you are, are drawing them and calling them. Lord, that they could continue to grow and mature in you. And Father, I thank you, Lord, for those believers this morning, Lord, who have been walking with you and who are um, walking with you. Lord, I pray that you would just assure them and reassure them of the, your grace and your mercy and, Lord, reassure them of their salvation, Father. Lord, it's such a tremendous, awesome blessing to know that we are in the palms of your hands, Lord, and no one, nothing can snatch us out of your hand. And, Lord, that we have that hope of an eternity with you, Lord, that we, when we pass from this life to the next, or Lord, when you come back, Lord, that you are going to be leading and guiding us and that you have us in your kingdom for all of eternity, Father. We thank you so much for that. Lord, we thank you, too, for the ones this morning, Lord, who maybe just have a couple shoots growing this morning, Lord, or who don't feel like they're as fruitful, Lord, as you, you have called them to be, but, Lord, there is evidence of growth, Father. We thank you for that, Lord. Pray for continued growth, Lord, knowing, Lord, that as we draw upon you, as we draw upon your Holy Spirit, Lord, you enable us, you empower us to do the work that you have called us to do. Father, we thank you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.